beginning, the Sentinels were targeting mutants. And they began targeting everyone. It's got to take all of us. The X-Men. Side by side. To end this war. Before it ever begins. The future of the world begins now. Well, don't hold back. X-Men, Days of Future Past. In really 3D and large format theaters. Rated PG-13. Boom, mm-hmm. boom, boom. Bailey's are strange when they're a stranger. Oh, hello. <laughs> okay, that's kind of funny. <laughs> you look good for Wednesday night, Bill? No, because I, I don't know if I'm working nights. I mean, well, I think you do have a possibility of being good for Wednesday night. I won't know until tomorrow. Which, mean, which means there's a possibility. <laughs> you won't know if the, you have off on more, If things go as they have been, no, unless something drastic changes, yes. But I would say more eighty percent no, which pisses me off. Which means twenty percent yes. <laughs> yes, there see, is a possibility. See, I was, see, that's the lawyer. I was good at math. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> this is the exact kind of thing I, I come up against. Is is there a chance you could make it? Well, I don't know. It's eighty percent, but I, no, yeah, there's a chance. That's all I asked. <laughs> I don't want to get your hopes up. I don't want you. Well, you know, you said you, you could say yes, there is, but I'm not optimistic. That would no. be an answer. I don't deal in absolutes, Paul. That's not an so. absolute. <laughs> wow. Back to the bin. Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back to the Bins. And if you're listening to this and wondering who the hell is introducing this episode of the show, I'll just say, hey, I used to do this all the time, so I know what I'm doing. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am very blessed to be guesting with two very awesome guys. We got Paul Spataro. Good day, sir. The producer. I don't know if that's still a thing, but it makes me laugh when I think about it because it's. I think it pisses Scott off, so I'll I'll do it if it pisses Scott off. Uh, that, is, that is generally <laughs> the focus of all things I do on this network. <laughs> Rifen or gardener, I really don't care at this point. <laughs> okay. You know what? I'm I'm content to just piss off McGregor if I have to. <laughs> Pick a that's Scott, any good. Scott. And Doctor Bill Robinson. So you said trust you. Is that like uh, from the TV show Sledgehammer? Trust me, I know what I'm doing. I need. I want that to come out on DVD because I want to see the episode where Bill Bixby was uh, in a prison cell reading an issue of The Incredible Hulk. Because <laughs> he directed a lot of those shows. When I was in high school, and this could be a real life with Dr. Bill. Okay, well, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen. It's time for Real Life with Dr. Bill Robinson. So when I was in high school, my parents had um, one of the slider boxes, cable boxes that had little slider back and forth. And um, one of their friends knew how to cheat the chip in it. So they came over, they popped tinfoil underneath the main chip, which I guess shorts out all the contacts so we could get all the channels. So thinking this whole tinfoil thing through, I took tinfoil from the back of the TV, 
ran it down, ran it underneath the carpet around the edge of the dining room, and then shoved carpet, uh, uh, lifted up the carpet and shoved tinfoil underneath the carpet into my bedroom, and then from there hooked onto a antenna wire and hooked it to the back of my TV. So anything they watched in the living room, I could watch on my TV without them knowing it. Needless to say... Cue the sinister laugh. <laughs> Needless to say, often I would sneak out and die, oh, I'm going to watch this movie channel tonight. Click, 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 click. Go back in my room, but go about my merry business. And that's all I'm saying about that, about my merry business. <laughs> Nobody wants to know about your merry business, Bill. <laughs> I remember Any- the slider boxes. Yeah, you could open them up, and you there was a chip you you could pry up, and you just laid uh, a strip of tinfoil on, on each side of it, and it would free up all the channels. Interesting. Way back in the day. Yeah, that was when we lived in the uh, not the rented house in Mountaintop. We had one of those. Of course, we had the first cable company in America as our cable company. So I wasn't able to get cable until the late '80s. Because I lived in the mountains of Brooklyn. <laughs> so this image of someone photoshopping mountains in the middle of Brooklyn. <laughs> Spike Lee looking up. <laughs> so what do we got this time out? We are, uh, so we, we are shilling for a movie? In, in, in all ways, we are followers, not leaders. <laughs> and the Two True Freaks Network is going to be, or the True the weekly show on Two True Freaks for the month of May is going to be doing the X-Men movies. So rather than be bold and innovative, we said, okay, we'll do the X-Men too. (laughs) (laughs) So this week we're covering the regular X-Men or Uncanny. X-Men, Uncanny. Adjectiveless. Adjectiveless or adjectivable. Is that a word? No. Adjectivable? Wow. That's why you're the brains of the outfit. And that's a scary thought. <laughs> da, I'm the brains. Da. Although, da, neither right, us, boss. <laughs> although neither of us had seen that word for that uh, Stanley word for gigantic in that one episode. I can't remember what that word was now. I couldn't remember it when it was written in front of me. But that was yeah, that was fun too. That was that was yet another theme episode, was it not? Oh yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. I think with the I think the whole summer is going to be themes. Yeah, that's well. Well, there's like thirty comic book movies coming out. So. Oh yes. It just seems to be. I mean, you got you had Cap, you have X Men, you got Spider Man, got Guardians of the Galaxy. If you count it as a comic movie, you got Godzilla. Uh, mm-hmm. And then towards the end of the film, you got an animated Big Robot Six. Which is a Marvel property. Yeah, that's one I've never read, so I don't have any any, any advanced thoughts about it. That was a 2000 book, wasn't it? I think Roughly. so. Yeah. And, and, and when I say I think so, I mean I really don't know. I'm just trying to sound like I know what's going on, so there you go. You're stealing another one of my bits, that means. <laughs> <laughs> I would never steal from you, I was about to say Pastaro, but apparently Pasquale. What? So, so what you're saying is, if it's good enough for me to do, it's below you. <laughs> below me. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're doing uh, three X Men books. Whoa, 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 wh
I didn't hear a lie out of Mike. I have not heard a lie out of Mike yet. Mm. That doesn't mean what isn't coming. Mm. What? Are you not familiar with the tradition of the laws? La? That doesn't oh. sound like you have a familiarity with it. <laughs> if, have you ever heard our uh, Dueling Arnolds bit? Um, unfortunately, I am so behind on this show that I feel bad that I'm guesting on it. <laughs> <gasps> For shame. But to be fair, there's like 30 shows I'm really behind on. Because so, everybody I know keeps doing podcasts. <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to give him a demonstration. Okay. Ready? <laughs> <laughs> now, if, if that doesn't, that probably doesn't give you any explanation of what it is. When we did our Dueling Arnolds bit, which I do recommend that all should listen to, uh, it started out with us both being Arnold prepping to sing our, to do our uh, duet. And started by clearing our throats. La, la, la. Where where was that attached to? I can't even remember what that was attached to the end of. I don't know, but I, I have put it on the end of at least one episode of Back to the Bins as well. Mm. Maybe I'll put it on the end of this one, just because now we've talked about it this much. Mm. And it's been a okay, while since it's been uh, it's come up. Gotta get into Arnold, so I always fall back on head like a hole. Black is your soul. I'd rather <laughs> die than give you a la, la, la. Okay, there you go. <laughs> All right, so yeah, we got so we got a lot at the end of that. That's now now I'm very happy with the quality of your lot. Look, you got to understand. I feel I get performance anxiety when 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 Bill, because Bill is so much better at impressions than I am, and so are you, especially doing Arnold. That I can't. I, I feel like if I try it, I'll fail and then look foolish in front of everybody, and it'll be high school all over again. <laughs> I feel like if I don't fail and look foolish, it's not a week of the podcast. <laughs> Yeah. Well, wait a minute. Usually, you make me feel foolish. Well, that's that's how I compensate. Hmm. <laughs> that's how he feels good about himself. So it's, I'm like Put one of the bullies who feels better about himself if he can make you feel bad. <laughs> so suck it, Robinson. <laughs> Watch out! He's going to give me a swirly. Well, we've already had our real life segment. Uh, why don't we th- Why don't we throw a promo in here and then we'll get back into our books? Because I don't know where we're going with this thing. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime, I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. 
The show is located at www.fusefromalongbox.com. And from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. All right. I'm sorry. And We're not back. <laughs> what was that? I'm sorry. Said I'm sorry. I'm in a goofy mood tonight. <laughs> we all are. I just. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much. I'm enjoying the hell out of it. I'm just not sure how much of it translates to. Uh, to quality pro. Hey, if you feel like cutting large chunks out of me rambling, I have no problem with that, sir. Go ahead. But that, we're not gonna we're not gonna cover any mail, right? I don't, I don't know when we're doing that's, mail right now. Yeah, that's kind of rude to Mike. You know, covering so, mail. So you're saying <laughs> that you want me to? You want me to, You're trying to tempt me to do it then? <laughs> oh no no <laughs> no no! I wasn't trying to use. Right, you should uh, do mail. It's rude to Mike. <laughs> I wasn't trying to use reverse psychology. I swear. Come on, I'm not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a doctor. A uh, doctor of what? Well, supposedly I'm a professor, so... <laughs> and I'm the producer. Come on. Or the chairman of the board, depending on how you want to run with that. Remember when I said I'd record with you last? I lied. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we can we go further afield? Yeah, I guess we'll catch mail another night. Yeah. We we, have, we've got four in the bag. Yeah, we don't have a lot, so maybe we'll... Uh... Did one of these weeks we're gonna do it? End up doing a two man show. It's probably best that we do it then. Yeah, I mean it's not like you would. We would do a mail segment, and then I wouldn't actually be on the show. Oh wait, that was last week. Yeah. But it's you know that's how I have fun. It's, it's silliness like that. Yes, he saves everything I say and he turns it around against me. You make you sound like an <laughs> idiot. <laughs> yeah, that was the end of the episode. You make me sound like an idiot. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> that's that's what, what, what buddies are for. <laughs> if, if I can't good-heartedly make you feel terrible about your whole life and existence, who can? <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> that's, hey, man, that's my wife's job. Oh. <laughs> what, Jesus? No, making me feel oh, okay. horrible about my life and existence. We're, oh, she's not out here, is she? Oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't mean it. <laughs> You're going to sleep on a couch. Yeah, how's that different from any other night? <laughs> oh. But anyway, enough about me. I want to show. All right. So with our X-Men-themed episode, I'm going to go first because I have the earliest issue. And I have X-Men number 58 from July of 1969, which has a cover price of 15 cents. This book came out at a time when the X-Men sales were starting to seriously lag. And the team of Roy Thomas and Neil Adams came on to pump some life into an otherwise failing franchise. Uh, unfortunately, at least as the story is told, uh, it did have that effect, but it did not do so in time to save the series. That by the time the sales numbers came in, uh, this show, the, the show, the book had been canceled to the extent that they stopped producing new issues. And from issue... Tempted to say 67? 66. 66. I'm closer. Pretty, pretty sure. 60, yeah, it's 66. Or, I only say that because there was something referenced in 
one of my books I did tonight, um, going from like issue 42 to 65. So I'm thinking 66. Yeah, 66 or 67 was the cutoff. Okay, and from that point until episode number 93, it was purely a reprint series uh, until the all-new, all-different X-Men were introduced in Giant Size X-Men number one, and that story continued into X-Men number 94, which in today's world, that would have been X-Men number one, not number 94, because they would never continue with the uh, numbering. But Mm -hmm. this issue is... I believe, an iconic-looking cover, uh, certainly one that we've all seen many times by Neil Adams. shows Iceman, Marvel Girl, Cyclops, the Angel and the Beast enclosed in a, basically in a snow globe-looking thing. Uh, And then superimposed over that image is a close-up of Havoc, uh, rendered in all yellow. Uh, The shot of the imprisoned X-Men is inside of the concentric circles on his chest, and the copy says, Enter, the man called Havoc story is titled Mission Murder. It's scripted by Roy Thomas with the art by Neil Adams, inked by Tom Palmer, and lettered by Audie Simic. Now, Tom p- Palmer, that's that's when you mix lemonade and iced tea, right? <laughs> no, that's that's, uh, that's, that's... that's an Arnold Palmer. I'm sorry. That's an Arnold Palmer, yeah, yeah. Or This this would be more of a Jack Nicholas. A Tom Palmer, would that be uh, whiskey and iced tea? Or, uh... Is that oh, a, that's a Tom, Tom Collins? Collins? I don't know. Any more? <laughs> I used to have, like a drink called Vodka Collins, which was the Collins mix for Tom Collins and mixed with vodka. It tastes just like lemonade. But I digress. Go on with your... Uh, vodka Gimlet. Never had that. Me, me neither, but it just sounds cool. Oh. I don't know if it tastes any uh, worth Never had a martini either, shaken or stirred. I have. Don't like and, olives. And Well, I actually like olives very much. But it's... Uh, I was kind of pictured as a kid, you know, when, when you'd watch, you know, a show like Bewitched, when they would have their advertising meetings, they'd sit and drink martinis. I always kind of thought it was like a like a wussy drink until I tasted it once, and it nearly like knocked me on the floor. <laughs> so, but I digress. So the uh, splash page of our story opens with immediate action, and there's a sentinel bursting into a room and snaring the beast in steel tendrils, while Iceman is starting to ice up in response to the threat. The two X-Men battle the Sentinel, and while we're seeing because that, Because everybody sits around in their shorts for no apparent reason with boots on. He's got Much a, like Bobby is. He's got a belt that says X. I think okay. that says it all. Do you really need more than that? I guess not. Yeah. That's, well, the whole costume thing in, in Silver it's, and Bronze Age comics kind of makes me laugh. It was casual costume Friday, I guess. You know, when, when they show, like, the Avengers walking around the Avengers mansions just in their costumes. Like, they never take their masks off as if it's comfortable to have a mask on at all times. But, as I was saying, the uh, two X-Men battle the Sentinel, and while we're watching that, we're also seeing insets or inserts of a TV broadcast of Larry Trask talking about the mutant threat and how he's carrying on his father's work with the Sentinels. The two heroes have a pretty dynamic, but and uh, ultimately fruitless battle uh, against the Sentinel. The Iceman creates Iceman creates an ice barrier uh, to allow the Beast to get away, and basically sacrificing himself. And we stay with the Beast, and we see uh, ultimately the Sentinel flying off and carrying off Iceman's li- limp body. 
we then join the angel who's talking to Cyclops and Marvel Girl, and the two of them are in their civilian clothes, but the angel is in his costume. They get a report from the Beast as to what just happened, and the angel decides uh, in a brilliant move that flying across the Atlantic Ocean by himself will be quicker than taking a plane. And Cyclops tells him not to, but he kind of gets pretty full of himself and goes anyway. Uh, we cut to Judge Chalmers, who is Larry Trask's confidant, and he's talking to Trask on the phone about an attack on the mutants. Trask goads the captured Iceman to try and attack him. And while that's going on, it's filmed by a hidden camera. And he says how he's going to use it basically to, uh, as PR in his war against the mutants. Bobby's thrown into a room with Havoc, who is being seen here for the first time in his now uh, well-known black costume. And uh, it's it's basically used to contain his mutant powers. Meanwhile, Polaris, who Bobby has the major hots for at this point, is lying unconscious in the room on an examining table. I'm sure nothing untoward was going on there. She wakes up and Havoc and Bobby argue about Havoc, about whether Havoc is going to do anything to help them escape, and he basically says he made some sort of a deal with Trask. And while they're talking, a sentinel kind of, in a very strange move, kind of peeks into the room and then just grabs Polaris from behind them, and that gets Havoc to let loose his power at the Sentinel, which destroys it, and that's followed by Trask using some type of array to negate Havoc's power. At this point in the Marvel Universe, Havoc is linked to the villainous character called the Living Monolith, and so as he's falling unconscious, he says that uh, you know his falling is going to empower the Living Monolith, and we immediately cut to him, and we see him starting to grow, but he's doused by some kind of adhesive, which keeps him from absorbing cosmic rays and neutralizes him as well. And then we cut to the angel, who is flying on his trans transatlantic journey, and he's accosted and quickly captured by two sentinels. And this all occurs in close enough proximity for Cyclops and Marvel Girl, who uh, just took a plane and were able to actually watch him through the window as that happens. So I guess his idea that he was going to fly better really... <laughs> was as stupid as we thought it was uh anyway uh from there we we see the sentinel a sentinel breaking in on mesmero and magneto but it turns out that magneto was only a robot and mesmero is not only captured but looking like a grade a tool trask is gloating big time and showing his accomplishments to judge chalmers who is appalled by the manner that trask is keeping the captured mutants in suspended animation status tubes stasis tubes uh, they debate the righteousness of his actions, and Trask points out that his uh, ultra-macho oversized 1960s medallion uh, that his father made him promise never to wear and had at his mother's funeral, and he kind of talks about it for really no reason. So I'm sure that's just an interesting little side story and doesn't have anything to do with what's going to go on from this point forward in the story. Anyway, at this point they are assaulted by Banshee, who had surrendered an island to a kind of dopey sentinel, who then brought him to the headquarters where he attacked. And the sentinel standing there like, oh, he gave up, I don't get it. Uh, unfortunately, they also quickly neutralize him with a different sonic, sonic frequency than the one that Banshee was emitting. It wasn't Sh the brown note, was it? I don't know what the brown note is. That's usually, that's supposedly the, the note you play that'll supposedly release your bowels. <laughs> I hope it wasn't that. Oh, I soiled myself. If it was, I'm sure Neil Adams could render it in a very dramatic 
autistic fashion. So Trask uses the uh, attack by Banshee as motivation to order the Sentinels to destroy all of the captured mutants. And uh, that is all, that's all Judge Chalmers can stand, because he can't stand no more. He simultaneously punches Trask and pulls off his, quick, his, his oversized 60s medallion. And as it turns out, to everyone's shock, the medallion was some sort of power dampener. And it turns out that Trask himself is a mutant. And now with the medallion removed, his, sent- his mutant power is uh, detected by the Sentinels who grab him and say that they're programmed to destroy him. And our story is to be continued. I don't know about you guys. It may be overly wordy, and there may be some coincidental things in here, but I love this whole run by Adams and uh, Roy Thomas. I think it broke new ground in comic storytelling, uh, certainly for Marvel Comics. Uh, it, it It's incredibly dynamic. It's got a more realistic look to it than anything else that had ever come out at this point. Uh, it's, it's just great stuff. I love this from top to bottom, and I'm not going to wait until we're done discussing it. I'm going to say right now, I'm giving this book an A. Well, yeah, because Adams, I mean, he's, you know, his, his, his panel layouts, the way it makes the book flow is just awesome. So, And, and it's also the coloring, too, because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have never read any of the, the Thomas Adams run on X-Men. This is the first issue uh, that I've read. I've read a lot of X-Men, just not this era. But what struck me on like the very first page was how different it looked from anything else from this era in Marvel. Uh, you know, I don't know if Steranko was drawing Captain America yet, but I mean, just just from the very first page of the Sentinel breaking in, and then all throughout the story as kind of a narrative tool, you have the TV and the talking heads kind of narrating things, and that's black and white. And then a little down the way, you have this great page. What page is this? Uh, of the um, it's page eleven of Bobby yelling at Havoc, and they're in a completely different lighting uh, on kind mm. of the. I don't. I hesitate to call it the second panel because them on the the floating floor, I guess, is a panel, and then the other one's a panel. It's just brilliant. It's just. Visually, it, it it just changes the entire dynamics of how a comic story can be told. The whole uh, aspect that you pointed out with the TV screens and and the basically the exposition that you're getting from that, as well as the advancement of the storytelling, is a storytelling technique that is often credited to Frank Miller, but it's something yeah. Frank Miller didn't do for probably twelve years after this. Yeah, because yeah, he I, did. Where did he first do that? I mean, was that in Bad, The Dark Knight? Or did he do it before I, that? I think he actually or, did Oh, he probably did that in Daredevil, didn't he? I think he did it in Daredevil, but I'm not 100% certain of that. I know Wolfman mm. and Perez used it as a narrative tool in New Teen Titans in the early issues. Yeah. The, I, I think the art is impeccable. I mean, Tom Palmer's great, Neil Adams is great. They complement each other really well. The the breaking the, you know, the, the panel grids the way he does in this was very often imitated after this. Uh, Steranko, I think if my memory is correct, I think he drew issue 53 
which is just before this run by Adams and uh, and Thomas. He, yeah, he he did a couple because I remember he, the there's a the cover with Polaris on it. Is that fifty? Yes. Uh, I'm trying to remember. You know what? Fifty three, I think, was actually uh, Barry Windsor Smith. I think fifty was Starenko. Mm. Fifty three, I think, was Blastar, and I think that was Barry Windsor Smith's first Marvel work. But uh, yeah, that's. I mean, so he was Starenko was there and he was working at this point, but I don't believe he had done the Captain America issues yet. I, I, I'm trying to look if there's a uh, if there's the page where they tell you what went out, what came out that month, but I don't see it, so I can't. Uh... Oh yeah, we got Captain America. What issue is that? 116. Oh, you know what? That's issue 116. I'm pretty sure Starenko did issue 110 of Captain America. So this would be just shortly after that. I guess my only art criticism would be on page 19 with Banshee looking like an old woman. Well, uh, yeah, but I mean, I don't know if he's trying to convey speed that his features would be blurred because he's moving so fast. Maybe. But yeah, he does look kind of weird looking. Yeah, like I said, it's my only criticism. Otherwise, the art in this thing is just spectacular. The story itself is really awesome as well. Uh, you know, you, you, the Sentinels attacking is, you know, kind of, I think after a while, it really wasn't, but it, be, you know, kind of came to be looked at as a cliche. Like, you know, all the Sentinels are back, and oh, by the way, now we have the Tri-Sentinel. That's a big deal. But at, at this time. point, this was not a cliche. This was, yeah. I believe, only the second appearance of the Sentinels. So that's actually what makes it kind of awesome, is that these things are a, a real threat for the X-Men. Uh, and they're also apparently the fashion police, because good God, Angel's costume is ugly. <laughs> <laughs> just, I mean, the whole the whole sequence, honestly, where, where all of a sudden he's like, to a guy who used to call himself the Avenging Angel. It's like, you know what? Shut up. <laughs> You're making an ass of yourself. Please stop. <laughs> I'm going to fly across the Atlantic. Right. <laughs> uh, a little too melodramatic there, but, uh, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do? Uh, you you, gotta you love said those... this is the only issue you read of this run, Mike? Uh, of this particular run, yes. Uh, do you mind if I spoil it for you? Sure, go ahead. Because when when they uh, they ultimately resolve the story, uh, basically, I, I love the fact that uh, what happens is Cyclops cap- Captain Kirk's the Sentinels. <laughs> yeah, really? that's right. He oh, basically yeah. talks oh, yeah. them into destroying themselves. Oh, right. I thought he did it like a double kick to their chest. That was no. just like, that... <laughs> he he says he ex- he basically tricks them into thinking that the sun is the source of all mutation, and they fly into the sun to cure it. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna go examine the. Th- the sun, bye, and they all fly off into space and like a big bug lamp. Though you can tell Roy Thomas did study at the feet of Stan Lee when it came to writing comic books, because everything is just as overblown as the way Stan Lee would write. And that's not a that's not a uh, negative criticism. It's just you know the whole thing of of him you know uh, wanting to fly across the country, and it's just like. Warren, wait! Don't try it! The people! Wait, that's Superman too. Um, <laughs> you know, Jet Home, sorry little buddies, that's not my style. I mean, that that that's pure, pure, pure Stan Lee coming out of Roy Thomas. And the but judge still, guy, no, you young fool, no! <laughs> but the great thing is, is that you can really tell that Adams had uh, kind of a history with doing 
you know, kind of like real life stuff. I mean, he, he drew the Ben Casey strip. So all of the scenes that don't have spandex in them look like a romance comic or, you know, any other kind of genre besides superhero. And it gives it a really realistic look to it. I mean, especially the last page, you know, that, that second panel that this is going to sound weird. It doesn't look like something you would normally see in a superhero comic of this era. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's so natural that when you go to the Sentinel on the next page, it fe- it makes the Sentinels actually feel a little more real, if that makes any sense. I don't know if I'm, but yeah, that, uh, I, I think you I think you you make total sense there. I, I think you're you're hitting on a point that's very accurate. And I do like the medallion that he obviously got at Mardi Gras and just convinced himself <laughs> that his father gave him. So, which is a damn lie, and he knows it. It's a summer of love, man. My medallion keeps me safe, dude. Now let me play my guitar and talk about my feelings, and I'll get some chicks. Uh, you know, Mesmero, the least of your concerns is that you served a creature of steel and synthetics. I think, I think, I think let's start problem number one, your outfit, and we can work from there. And how about the fact that somebody's yanking you up by your cape? <laughs> Not a robot! Well... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Look at his outfit. Basically, though, he's basically got an S- a purple S and M outfit <laughs> with, with gloves and boots and the the weirdest headpiece you're ever gonna find. And like a and like a cobra headpiece with a cape. The, yeah, he's the worst cosplayer ever. Now, but the skin. I mean, his skin is green, right? That's when when you see the green through, like at his say his abs. That's bare skin, I think, not costume. <laughs> I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, Mesmero, Martian Manhunter called. He wants his look back. <laughs> he doesn't like, he doesn't like what you're doing with it. He's pissed off you dyed his clothes purple. But no, it's just like things that should be really goofy, like Scott and Gene looking outside the airplane window <laughs> and seeing it. That is just like, that's par for the course of this era of comics though. That, that, that kind of thing would happen. But I love the fact that it looks like the Sentinels haven't so much captured the avenging angel, but are just kind of escorting him somewhere. Like they're holding his hand as they cross the street or something. It's Please really... come with us, sir. You'll be safe. <laughs> Where I like the fact that the only reason they don't attack the plane is that it, you know, we are only programmed to capture one mutant number eight. Proceed to station alpha. <laughs> I, I think that, I think maybe that was Roy looking at the page, going, "Why don't the oh they're 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 not programmed to?" Okay, moving on, moving on. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Pay no attention to the other mut- mutants on the plane. Move along, move along. So that's why we've been circling. Two Sentinels with a captured muty. Yeah, that was uh, that was that was the best way to show uh, you know, <laughs> the, the prejudice racism. against the uh, <laughs> against, against mutants at that time. And I just I always love when I see the uh, the ad for uh, the facial hair that you could buy. <laughs> Fool your friends. <laughs> and basically, it's it's you know cartoon a cartoon of the same face with a beard. Uh, goatee, uh, must just a mustache. It looks like someone just played with like Wooly Willy or something, you know, and just <laughs> just move the magnetic things around with it. But uh, no, I, I think the the weirdest thing about this issue was the fact that this is the first appearance of Havoc. Well, first, as 
the cops has havoc. havoc. He he was in prior to this, but but yeah, this is in his in the in the havoc costume. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I thought it was actually his first appearance. I no, uh, he'd appeared before. In fact, if you go down to the letters page, there's it shows that guy in the skirt that uh, Hank McCoy's looking up his skirt. That is uh, Summers. That's uh, Alex. Why is he looking up his skirt? I don't know. That's just where the shot looks. Hank was was experimenting then. (laughs) Hank Hank was wondering if he was a real Scottishman. I also like on that page, Eric the Red, like, so do you come here often? (laughs) Now that looks like a cosplay scene. So what are you doing after the con? Would you like to? You want to go to Starbucks? There's a Starbucks around it. Though the letters page is kind of is kind of funny because you know, there's a letter. The last one's like, "Dear Stan and Jim, X Men number forty nine. Wow. X Men number fifty. Double wow. X Men number fifty one. Zowie. <laughs> that man's probably podcasting these days. <laughs> Maybe it's Doug- the shortest episodes ever. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm serious. I got to go back to the Eric the Red hitting on uh, hitting on Lorna Dane. That is just amazing. And <laughs> she's like... she's pointing, going, "The police are right over there. <laughs> Don't try anything, buddy." <laughs> or, the protect, they the won't protective get to order you says you're not time. supposed. To, the protective <laughs> order says you're not supposed to be closer than that line right there. <laughs> <laughs> What's up with his pants? <laughs> I guess there's... he's kind of got shorts, but they have the little extension on the outer thigh. It just kind of reminds you that sometimes, you know, as much as as much as we love superheroes and as much as we love supervillains and all that, they do kind of look like they're about ready to go to a leather bar. It's like, you know, the gym coach in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 that turns out to be a leather freak. I mean, it's just you don't really expect it, but then it's there and and, and it's just kind of uncomfortable. But you accept it because it's supposed to be normal. But then you start thinking about it and you can't think of anything else. I think you expect to see him in what was the bar in uh, Police Academy that uh... (laughs) the. They would always end up in the Blue Oyster or something like yeah, that. Yeah, the Blue Oyster. Dun, dun, da, 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 da. <laughs> Eric the Red tonight, folks. But I guess, you know, when, when you think about the, the costumes and, and you try to, like, like we, we were talking on last week's episode about how, uh, you know, the Green Goblin costume from the first Spider-Man movie and, you know, why they can't make them closer to what you have in the, in the comics. And, and if you think about it from the perspective of it's a world populated with people who wear costumes, then costumes don't seem weird. Yeah, and that's the thing about eventually, you know, the line you, you kind of have to draw is, I was reading once an interview with Elliot S. Magan where he was talking about how, you know, Superman would influence fashion to, pe- to the point where people would wear Superman costumes and it would be just normal fashion. So... Why is it when you have a world of superheroes who wear costumes that people kind of make fun of it like it's like it's not a world that has costumes? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, it, that I, always kind of bugs me. It's just like you know, th- this should be normal. This is what they wear. You know, don't you know? Yeah, it would be weird if I walked down the street in a Captain America outfit for well reasons, both general and specific. But you know. <laughs> In this world, it would just be how it worked. So I don't. Maybe I'm thinking too much about it. But well, no. But see, the thing. I think it's just the opposite. I think that the people who want to criticize the costumes and refuse to accept them in the superhero movies are not thinking about it enough. 
and they're just they're just taking it on on its face. Well, the costume is silly, and that's it. They they don't think it out further. That like you say, you know, it's especially like say in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where now you have a multitude of heroes and villains. Uh, it would start to become commonplace that people wear these flashy outfits. And, and, you know, it just wouldn't seem that weird. And that's, you know, you got to go with the perspective that the people in that, to, to the logic that you're setting up for that world, it's not weird for people to wear costumes. That's it. End of story. There's no need to take it further. Well, and, and to take that and kind of run with it a little further, I, I think, I think the, the superhero movies that work best and the superhero television series that work best are the ones that don't poke fun at it, but just play it straight. And you, if everyone else is playing it straight, then it's not going to be weird to the audience because the people on the screen are accepting it. So you're going to accept it. The moment you break that veneer and have somebody go, God, you look kind of silly. The audience is going to start thinking, wow, they really do look silly and you've lost them. But if you play it straight, like in Avengers where, you know, Captain America and um, Coulson had that great conversation where, you know, Captain America's like, well, some people might think it's a little corny, and Coulson's like, we need that right now. That, to me, made me buy everything that happened for the rest of that film. So that Captain America's outfit, eh, maybe not the best Captain America outfit, not as better, certainly, than Reb Brown in the two television pilots, but, you know, that's where your mask was a motorcycle helmet, so you really can't do worse than that. Uh, that's why in the, the first movie, when he puts the shield where the windshield should be, I think that's a, like a little secret nod to the, to the Red Brown films. But that's just my personal theory. But no, you, you know, if you play it straight, then it shouldn't be weird at all anyways. You know, if you're poking fun at it, you're one, not trusting the material and two, you're not trusting the audience to accept it. You're going to just assume that the audience is going to think it's weird. And that's not the person that should be doing superhero films. That's well, why I think the Marvel films have been so successful. I think some some of the movies where the costumes have worked the best are certainly the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. No one ever thought twice, as far as I could tell, about the fact that he was wearing the very traditional Superman costume. Nobody seemed to have any problem with it back then. Uh, in the X-Men First Class movie, I thought they handled... In the variation on the original X-Men costumes very well. And I thought they played very well, and I didn't think it ever seemed weird that they were wearing those costumes. Well, mm-hmm. didn't that come out at the same time uh, the Grant Morrison run did on oh, X-Men came, where they X-Men were in the First leather? This came out significantly later than the Grant Morrison run. Well, maybe that's no, the, where they took that from. No, the Grant look. Morrison... Well, the Grant Morrison run and the X-Men run of that time period kind of took the cue from the from the first film where everyone was wearing leather. Hmm. But I, I also think in the in the two Captain America movies. Oh, sorry, I had my my yeah. Never mind. You you did say first class. I had my films I messed up. Never mind. Okay, no problem. Be quiet. I'd be quiet now. <laughs> I thought in in the two Captain America movies, they make a point of letting you know that that costume is meant to inspire people. And 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 I think that it works. Exactly for the reasons that you said, Mike, that it, it they're not poking fun at it. They're they're letting you know there's there's a valid reason for him to wear it. And end of story. I am very impressed though with the first Captain America film that no stills of him in the outfit he was wearing when he was doing the stage show got leaked out. Because could you imagine the fanboys reacting to that? Mm. That really traditional Captain America. Okay, here's the Captain America outfit from the movie. 
This is what he's going to be wearing, folks. Ah. Well, it would, it would have been, I mean, from the one point of view, it would be nice to have everybody think, okay, this is the costume. And then you see, oh, no, that's just, you know, they build on that and they make it better. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, with the outrage people feel, all of a sudden you'll have people saying, oh, I'm not going to see the movie because I didn't like the picture. <laughs> so they, they could, I guess they couldn't take a chance on that. All right. Anybody else got anything on this one? Uh, page 17, mid-panel. It looks like um, Trask is uh, showing him his mint. Look at my mint X-Men figures sealed in these life, these full-size <laughs> plastic tubes. Aren't they cool? And, uh, I'm going to sell them on eBay. <laughs> and on page 16, um, last panel... Is that Sentinel giving him the Heil Hitler sign, or what is he doing there? <laughs> it does kind of look like it, doesn't it? <laughs> it's kind of scary there, dude. What are you doing? Arnim and... Zola has taken him over, so there you go. <laughs> and that's where they say, oh, we have detected another mutant in the vicinity, but something prevents us from pinpointing the mutant. Hmm. Could it be that big medallion around your neck? <laughs> <laughs> Could it be that big energy-dampening medallion? <laughs> <laughs> That would have been funny if the mutant, if the if the sentinel goes, there's a uh, there, there's a mutant around here, sir. Does your energy dampening medallion have anything to do? With that? <laughs> Mind if I see your medallion, please? Thank you, sucker. Foosh. Sucker. What's, now, what's the thing that that Mesmero is is standing by on uh, page fifteen, at the uh, bottom right panel? It looks like a giant magnet. Uh, hmm. Delay him while prepared. He seems immune to my mental bombardment. No kidding, Sherlock. He's a robot. (laughs) He has no brain. He's not a human brain. Sentinels, they're made of people. But my robot Magneto seems to get thrown (laughs) off by it. Save me, Magneto. Save me. Blup, and he falls to pieces. What? He wasn't a very sturdy Magneto robot. And what? Is he Is he like uh, Rain Man? Magneto collapsed into a thousand metal fragments. A thousand. A thousand metal fragments. Oh, okay. a thousand three. <laughs> a thousand three. I'm watch Wapner. I'm going to watch Wapner. And, one, and uh, two ball bearings. And it's hard to believe that a robot made of that type of material, when you see what like what it collapses into, that that was lifelike enough to fool anybody. Well, Mesmero is not the sharpest tool in the shed. It's not, well, like, talking, I, I don't see any synthetic skin falling to the ground. It may be it may be a different universe, but we're talking about a same era where Batman could wear a mask over the cowl. <laughs> yeah, that's and true. it and it was okay. <laughs> I do want somebody to I want Neil Adams to go back and draw like a disguised Batman with the ears tearing through the top of the mask. What's wrong with your hair? Why is it pointed like that? Ah, a moose. I got some product in my hair. I don't, I don't know what's going well, on. Well, I, I guess that that's one of the uh, the conventions of of silver and bronze age comics that you have to be willing to accept to uh or suspend belief on is that somebody could just put on a uh a mask and cover up whatever they are and fool everybody and i'm totally down with that too I'm, I'm not one of these people that that gets hung up on that if the story is good enough it's just kind of fun you know you just go with it because it, if it was accepted at the time period in which the story was being told then you know you poking fun at it 30 40 years later really 
really feels like you're just being kind of pedantic about it. So, but maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong about that. No, no, Not I don't, I don't think you're wrong at all. I think you do have to accept that that was just one of the tropes of the time. Yeah. Well, the last thing I got to say about this, and I think we've mentioned this for this particular ad in other books, is how many kids died with those Polaris nuclear subs for uh, six ninety eight. I think Angel tried to cross the Atlantic in it. I want to know how fast the people with the 007 uh, exercise equipment got sued for using 007 in the name of their product. The 007 Power Twister. I I like to use my Power Twister. What? Oh, my. And you know, you you know you're gonna get good results because they drew a cartoon of a guy with big arms. <laughs> this could be you. you know, he's gonna uh, let. Also, I'm a little creeped out about the inflatable plastic pillows uh, that you can get apparently through the Mary Marshall Mary Marvel Marching Society. Why does it have Stanley's face with a hole in it? I don't understand. <laughs> Stand a little straighter, walk a little. Disturbed now. I am. I'm, I'm looking at strips. that ad. Yeah. Okay, I see the the Spider-Man pillow. I see the Thor pillow. Am I missing something? What's the purpose of the little Captain Marvel down at the bottom middle? Oh, he's just showing you where to fill out the. Um, is that what it is? He's like over here, dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> I want someone to Photoshop in that word below. <laughs> <laughs> what did it cost? It was dollar fifty. Well, wait. Add twenty cents extra for each Canadian and European order. And I like the guy that'll make me a master of karate. But if my name was Wallace W. Ruman, I would study martial arts too. <laughs> uh, Already, we ready to move on to the next one? Okay, no, just just yeah. one, one oh. more. Uh, on one of the pages with the multiple ads, it uh, would be 27 on our copy. In the upper right corner, is that one of the little rascals? Uh... <laughs> I'm, I'm 11 years, years old, old. old. And I'm still <laughs> 75 to 100,000. I don't think even, even like... in, in, in uh, whatever it was, 1969, I don't think kids were dressing that way. But what's he uh, selling to make the, that much money? Hmm? Well, he's playing three-card Monty. Look at that hat. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's, he's in an alley. Find the queen. Find the queen. Find the queen. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry, sir. Queen's under my hat. You lose. Well, you know Why, this you is the run? 60s. You know this is the 60s because there's an ad that says, Too skinny? New scientific discovery to help you put on weight. <laughs> it's called <Eat>. food. <laughs> it's called eat, fat ass. Yeah. <laughs> Scantily dread the scantily dressed woman play guitar in seven days or your money back. Wear a sombrero and hold a cigar and some nightwear. Hmm. All right, we could go on and on and on, but <laughs> in reality, somebody's got a Chris Claremont book to do, so that could take a long time. <laughs> yeah, y'all, y'all settle in because, uh, as I found out today, there is no short way to write a synopsis to a Chris Claremont comic. Well, so thank, thank God I didn't try to synopsize that. Or, or Jeff. <laughs> For my choice, I uh, it was actually kind of difficult because uh, there, you know I've read most of uh, up until about like 1993 from the you know from the giant size X Men number one to that time period. I've read a lot of X Men uh, in that run, but I always fall back on 
to me, what I think is the classic X-Men team, which is Chris Claremont and John Byrne. So for that purpose, I chose X, uh, the all-new, all-different, not-yet-uncanny X-Men number 109. It has a cover date of February 1978. Though well, technically, I guess it just has a cover date of February. Uh, cover price of this was uh, $0.35. Cents. So basically, if you put the cover price of Paul's book with my book, you could get maybe a Coke out of a vending machine these days, if you're lucky. Mm. The story... T- <laughs> I don't think you could. <laughs> story title is Home. Or, well, if at Walmart, their their cans are like 25 cents. So oh, maybe okay. you could do. Uh, the story title is Home Are the Heroes. The credits to this are Chris Claremont, author... Uh, John Byrne, God, these guys, like, (laughs) they have some kind of, like, self-esteem issues that they've got to make their their jobs sound more important than they really are. He's not a writer, he's an author. He's not the penciler, he's the artist. Terry Austin keeps it real, he's the inker. Joe Rosen is the letterer, and Andy Yankus is the colorist, and the very late, great Archie Goodwin was the editor on this one. As the title suggests, the X-Men have returned to their home in Westchester after an adventure in space. The team at the time consisted of Storm, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Banshee, Wolverine, who is really anxious to get out of the costume he wore while in space, Scott Summer, Scott Summers, who really needs to get out of the hip English professor garb he is currently trying to rock, Jean Grey, and Professor X. But they are not the only ones entering the mansion. Along for the ride I- are... What? I think Wolverine had space fleas from that costume or something. <laughs> space fleas. Along for the ride are former Professor X Squeeze and current Banshee Squeeze, Moira McTaggart, and Princess Lalandra of the Shi'ar. Professor X is determined to make his new lady feel comfortable during her stay at the mansion. Meanwhile, Moira is giving Nightcrawler 17 kinds of Scottish accent at hell for bamfing into the room, which stinks to high heaven and scared the devil out of her. Is, is it Moira McTaggart or is it Annie Hall? <laughs> same. I think really at this point it's the same difference. Okay. Uh, Sorry to interrupt you. Banshee is determined to lighten her mood by planting a rather passionate kiss while Professor X gives them the stink eye. <laughs> <laughs> He's giving them a really ugly look at the panel. Oh my god. I did not notice that until you said that just now. Oh, that's uh, great. <laughs> A storm retires to her attic room and is upset because her plants are starting to look in a bad way. She whips up a storm to water them and then gets naked at the same time. Because the storm of this era was all about getting naked. Uh, The thunder is noticed by Jean Grey's father, but her mother is more concerned with the revelation that their daughter is more than your average woman. Jean and Scott see this, which leads to a flashback to the end of their adventure in space, and the MCON Crystal, and the Imperial Guard, and the Star Jammers, and, Cors- and Corsair wanting Jean to keep silent on the fact that he's a ripoff of both Star Wars and Star... Oh, wait, wait, I mean he's Star- I mean, Scott's dad, to the politics that have kept Lalandra from assuming the throne. It was all a big hoopla, and now they're home, but Jean is concerned about just how powerful she has become. After the flashback, Jean's parents ask to speak with her, and we get a few panels of Scott thinking about how he'd really like to talk to her about Corsair, about where he is, who he's with, what he's doing. Is he thinking of him, and whether he'll return one day? 
Scott strikes uh, on the idea to talk to his brother, but Moira tells him that Alex and Lorna Dane, which sounds like a shortbread cookie, have gone to help rebuild her lab after the whole thing with Eric the Red. You know, the guy we were talking about before that looks like, you know, a leather bar guy? Interlude. Someone is tracking someone else. Thankfully, this pays off later. (laughs) Meanwhile... Meanwhile, Nightcrawler sets up with a date with his favorite girl, Amanda. He invites Colossus to come along so it can be a double date with Kurt, Peter, Amanda, and Amanda's friend, Betsy. Peter is tempted, but has already made plans with Moira and Banshee. It's too bad, too, because they're going to go see Star Wars. That movie is awesome. Nightcrawler bamfs downstairs and finds Scott watching through the back door as Jean reveals her ability to her parents. Scott is a bit of an ass to Kurt, but then again, what is new? Kurt basically tells Scott to get over himself, but in a really nice way, and is about to reach him when Banshee shows up and invites him to the picnic. Kurt and Scott decline, but we get the feeling that Nightcrawler's words actually got through to him because he's actually kind of smiling, though on Scott, that's really creepy. Banshee joins Peter and Moira and Storm when Wolverine shows up to announce that he's hitching a ride so he can do a little hunting. Storm gets her nose out of joint and asks why he would kill innocent animals for mere sport. Wolverine flatly tells her that it ain't any of her business, but since she's being so damn presumptuous, she might as well know that he doesn't plan on killing anything. To him, the thrill is sneaking up on a deer and gently tagging her. Anyone can kill, but get to drop on them in their own environment, well, that's fun. Storm apologizes, but Wolverine could care less, since they've been pegging him all wrong since he joined the team. Interlude. The people that were tracking someone before show up again, and one of them is wearing a costume. They have managed to elude any detection by American forces and feel confident that they will be on top of Weapon X before he knows it. We join Wolverine as he is on the hunt and nearly manages to tag his quarry when a man in a red and white costume with a maple leaf design bursts from the ground. Wolverine immediately recognizes the man, but is polite enough. But the man is polite enough to reveal that he is James McDonald Hudson, also known as Weapon Alpha. He's there to bring Wolverine back to Canada, but Wolverine has other ideas. To Wolverine's mind, he resigned back in Giant Size X-Men number one, and he's a free agent now, which he likes quite a bit. Alpha informs Wolverine that he's going to have the team. Uh, he's he is going to have to team, teach the runt some manners. I don't know why I wrote team. And Wolverine responds by unsheathing his claws and attacking. The attack surprises Hudson at both speed and ferocity, and he barely manages to get his force field up in time. Hudson uh, responds with a vicious right cross, which Wolverine replies to with a left. Meanwhile, Wolver- uh, while Wolverine is confident that we that he has always been better than Jimmy at anything, the glowing suit and the fact that Hudson can fly gives him an advantage. As Hudson flies towards Wolverine, the man that is the best that he is at what he does, and what he does isn't very pretty, suddenly wonders how much it's going to hurt when Hudson hits him at full force. Across the way, Banshee and Moira are swimming as Aurora and Peter Aurora, I really could never say that name right, Aurora and Peter talk about Aurora's problem with wearing clothes and how awesome Peter's home looks during the summer, or winter. They are interrupted by Wolverine crashing into a nearby tree. Weapon Alpha catches up with his prey, but is upset that he has found what he thinks are innocent witnesses. He tells Storm and Colossus to back off, but Colossus has other ideas. Peter armors up and knocks Hudson into some nearby trees. Hudson realizes that he has a fight on his hands, which I thought you kind of knew when, you know, you were fighting with Wolverine, but whatever. He tries to talk tough, but Storm enters the fray, and even though Wolverine wants Hudson for himself, 
the X-Men are prepared to uh, protect their friend. Hudson hits Colossus with an energy bolt, which ricochets off Peter's body and hits Moira. To say this pisses Banshee off is an understatement. After making sure his lady love is okay, Banshee attacks with such force that he starts to liquefy anything his sound waves touch. Hudson flies into the air to evade the blast and is soon flanked by Banshee and Storm. Thinking that getting the hell out of there is the better part of not getting his ass handed to him, Hudson uses the suit to seemingly disappear. Storm believes that he has just turned invisible and whips up a rainstorm to reveal Hudson's location, but there is no sign of him. Banshee tells her that they are wasting their time, and for some reason, Storm agrees with him, but thinks he is also on the ground signaling them to return. They rejoin Colossus, who is carrying Moira, and Wolverine, who apologizes for the fracas. Colossus says that their attacker spoke to Wolverine like he knew who he was. Wolverine replies that once upon a time, the two were buddies, almost like brothers. He apologizes because he has a feeling that this is just the beginning that from here on in, things are just going to get worse. Dun-dun-dun! Dun-dun-dun! Dun! Things uh, can only get better. <laughs> this is an awesome, awesome issue. It is like everything that is right with Burn and Claremont's run in like one issue. Just the team gets... Uh, everybody in the team gets a little uh, downtime before the next adventure starts. Uh, the main reason I chose this one is I am a sucker for Alpha Flight. I love that group, and I love John Byrne's run on that book. So see, so reading all of the initial adventures is just never fails to bring a smile to my face. But this is just—it's just a great and fun comic. I, I, I really see when I read this run uh, several years ago, I, I totally saw why people got excited about X Men during this time period. And especially after the death of Gene, why they became such a powerhouse for you know the late seventies and and the eighties into the nineties. Uh, the <laughs> there are some wonky things like you know Professor X giving them the stink eye. Um, that is like really I, I don't know I I have to assume that's on purpose. Uh, that that you know it's a little silent nod to the fact that Moira and Charles used to be uh, involved with each other. <sighs> I don't know if I should feel this way, but Jean's parents being all depressed that she has uh, mutant powers seems cliched. But again, I don't think at the time it was. Uh, Did it already I, know she had the powers at this point? I mean, I, hmm. I don't think so i don't think it's like the movie where um yeah where, yeah where they you know they were pretty hip to the fact that she well where it was basically kitty pride um mm. i love this team as well this lineup with wolverine and storm and colossus and banshee and nightcrawler uh i like that nightcrawler amanda i think turns out to be a witch which is kind of awesome and it's like uh they were raised together too in the uh i think the circus yeah she's a she's a sorceress um, oh, I can't remember when that's revealed. Like in the 140s, maybe? 150s? Probably around there. Yeah. But also, you know, you have Welpin, Whippin Alpha, who becomes Vindicator, who becomes Guardian. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, they, they Wolverine is the original hero with the mysterious past. And they eventually get around to explaining how Wolverine knows this guy, and they kind of flesh that out a little bit. But 
in terms of just dropping somebody into the middle of this and introducing him as somebody that knows Wolverine, but we don't know where he knows him from, and it turns into a big fight, I just think it's it, it's just damn near perfect. And here, few few artists draw people flying as well as John Byrne does. I mean, he has a couple stock shots, but they're all Superman poses to me, just because I'm so used <laughs> to drawing Superman. So I can't I can't really see the difference. But uh, you know. You know, Peter is talking about, you know, how, uh, how, you know, Aurora made, you know, like, you know, a little bit of a splash when she was naked at the mansion swimming pool. Dude, you're wearing a Speedo. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you are like six inches of cloth away from being completely naked. You are not one to talk about anything, so... But no, just a great fights, great characters, uh, you know, subplots are set up because that's Chris Claremont. But my favorite moment from the entire issue is Colossus steps up and says, Wolverine is our friend. If you want him costumed one, you will have to go through me first. Your funeral, big fella. Somehow, Tovarish, I do not think so. And he just knocks the hell out of him. <laughs> oh, I've got a fight on my hand. My favorite Ooh. part is is when uh, and and this this is one of the things I love about this issue is just about everybody has their moment in the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love when when Banshee just freaks and heads heads at him, and I, I love the shot and it, it's so different stylistically from the way the other shots are drawn. The way they show him traveling at such speed that his his features are totally distorted. I, I just Which think looks that's awesome. Better than it did in the previous issue we talked. Well, about. yeah, but yeah, but it still has that distortion quality to it like like we did see in the previous one so maybe that was the way everybody wanted well, to draw him. they also changed up banshee's look from uh up until he became an x-man in giant size x-men number one they draw him they drew him as more of a stereotype he, yeah than, he did have like later lucky on. charms uh you know shamrock he, looked at his face and he and he was kind of skinny burn really draws him as being kind of buff yeah. Which uh, which they would carry on, especially when like Jim Lee was drawing him. I mean, well, everybody Jim Lee drew. I mean, Scott Summers got you know Slim Summers got <laughs> cut uh, under the hands of Jim Lee, but he did under John Byrne too. But uh, it's interesting. You can notice that this is early John Byrne in the X Men uh, because there's still a little bit of Cockrum feel to the art a little bit, but it's still, you know, very much John Byrne, mm-hmm. uh, especially in Wolverine and his costume. Uh, th- it would change dramatically as, as he continued to draw the characters. But, you know, I, I, I hold the Claremont Byrne run of X-Men as one of the greatest runs of comic books, not just superhero comic books. I'm talking just comic books in general when the writing and the art came together in such a way, and it's nothing against Dave Cockrum, who I love, and I think he, you know, I have to agree with everybody who has ever said that he is the best costume designer of the 70s. Um, there is just, you know, I am very biased because I started reading Superman when John Byrne was on that book. John Byrne is responsible for me starting to collect comics. And while there are certain moments, especially, you know, in the post-Superman era, where his art doesn't look as good. Anything, you know, Superman and before just is just gold to me. And, the, and 
outside of Scott Summers just being a jackass, I mean, it's just you got to love all of these characters. Now, if you go, my, my talk about everybody having their moment in the sun, uh, the very last page of the story, uh, first panel, where Storm is uh, basically going to, uh, following Banshee at that moment and I guess looking to restrain him uh, and the angle they show her at. If you look closely enough, you could see her bathing suit is skimpy enough that a butt crack is sticking out at the top. <laughs> Just saying. But let me ask you a question. Come on, Storm, we're wasting our time up here. I agree, my friend. Banshee's signaling us back to the lake. I saw that. No, Banshee's right in front of you. Yeah, in fact, you're... Yeah, I know. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so, I know that's just an editorial mistake. Uh, well, no, know, it's, re- it's really funny. In the background, you can see somebody waving. Yeah, so hey, it's, it must hey. be uh, Colossus that's waving them down. down. <laughs> Um, uh, or Wolverine, because Colossus is... Because ho- you can is, see somebody holding somebody, too. Yeah, it's, yeah. I guess it is Wolverine that's waving them. Well, you know how... Since you've read Alpha Flight, you know how um, Hudson disappears, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Paul, do you know? I don't remember. And I have read a lot of Alpha Flight, but I do not recall that. He can, he can cause his suit, I believe, to make... Uh, he basically negates the rotation of the Earth... And he can basically stop himself, so he'll 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 stop at a point. The Earth will rotate by real quick, and then he'll reappear. Basically, mm-hmm. oh, that's cool. I didn't yeah. know that. And it's such a great costume. I love the Guardian's outfit. Yeah. Uh, just you know, it, it it's 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 really simple, and it kind of looks like a speed skater. Like maybe he's an Olympic skater, you know, you know <laughs> representing Canada in the Olympics with it's a Cap- with a cowl on. Scott should have been here. But at the same time, it's just great. I mean, it's just, it, it, especially drawn by John Byrne. I mean, I, I think that's why that book really kind of tanked after Byrne left. And I know Byrne has said in, in, in you know more recent times that he really doesn't like his run on Alpha Flight because uh, he never really wanted to do it as a separate title anyways. Uh, but I just, I, I think he did some of the best art of his career at Marvel on that book. Yeah, the uh, Whiteout issue was great. <laughs> way to way, way to way to take away my thunder there, Bill. I hate you. <laughs> uh, there are there is a overt Superman reference on page twenty seven though. Before my eyes, that cloud clown is turned into a man of steel. <laughs> he writes that name down and goes, "That would make a great title for a comic book one day." <laughs> hmm. um, same same page. Uh, I guess it's a good thing that Mortar fell in the water because oh my god her head's on fire because <laughs> yeah. you can see that beam bounces off colossus which is a nice what is that shazang skazang skazang and uh arg her hair By is the dry. white wolf <laughs> is being bounced off me i mean her whole head is on is a flame and luckily she fell into the water and where did banshee get an nypd uh t-shirt he was a cop, wasn't he? Yeah, well, uh, but he was in- Interpol, so I don't know. Maybe you should have it. Yeah, but maybe, but you know what? I have an NYPD hat, uh, and I was never Yeah, but cop. for the longest time, they wouldn't sell those to civilians, right? They, you, you, would only, you could only be... Well, but yeah, you're right. He was a cop, so maybe he got it from see, buddy. See, the thing, the thing I remember is him wearing the NYPD thing uh, when I started reading the X-Men for the first time during when Jim Lee had introduced the adjectiveless title. And he was wearing an NYPD. So I always, in my head, because I saw that then, 
it's like, oh, at some point he was a cop and he he got a T-shirt. So then when I saw it here, I just assumed that. I got to tell you, I really don't know anything about the Banshee's background. Yeah, he was not a New York City police officer. But it's, you know what, uh, having had many uh, friends and family who were cops, uh, it's also common for them to trade, uh, you know, different kinds of uh, hats, clothes, uh, patches, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, we would do that with other navies when I was in the service with Russians and, and other, you know, Greek navies, we'd trade hats and Kami love us. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> what? What? Uh, but I'm at page 15 of the book. It's nice to see that the guys that used to be on the Death Star found work. Yes, I noticed that also. <laughs> <laughs> these these were the guys that were on shore leave, I guess, when the Death Star blew up. So, it's you like, know. Oh, man. I guess I'm going to have to paint a main leaf on this and go work for the Canadians. Damn. One, one negative I can come up with, and there, there are precious few negatives in this book, but on the cover, uh, what's it called? Weapon Alpha's body positioning looks just incredibly awkward. Like, how's he Please. throwing that punch? How's he getting any any strength behind that punch? Uh, yeah, considering how short Wolverine's supposed to be. <laughs> and he's just, he's standing and he, like, he's not putting his body weight behind it. He's not moving into it. He's just throwing like a weird uppercut. Okay. No, uh, he's getting the extra strength because he's blasting behind him, hitting Colossus and the force of the blast behind coupled with the upward momentum of his uppercut is why he was able to knock out or knock. Very Wolverine good explanation. Down. I don't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just it looks kind of awkward to me. It's it's just an effort to have him in the center of the page, uh, you know, in in a pose of sorts. Uh, it's it's not an effort to create an an actual action shot, and yet it's an action shot. Well, obviously he's quite the multitasker. Now is this is this a Cockrum cover? Mm, it might be. It has a, a lot of Cockrumisms on it. I'll, I'll... Do we have a chance to go to Mike's Amazing World? Especially, well, while you do that, I will talk dun, about dun, the poster dun, bona- dun. bonanza where you can get all five posters of Farrah Fawcett, John Travolta, Jamie, Steve, and Donnie and Marie for $2. Group wow. B is Kiss, The Hardy Boys, Grizzly Adams, Christy McNichol, and Beretta. Oh, you know, Scott Rifen was all over that because he really wanted that Hardy Boys one. <laughs> yeah, he has like all the action figures and, you know, the albums the Hardy, Boy. the Hardy Boys put out, you know. He's got the Grizzly Adam stuffed bear. Yeah. There's also uh, an ad for Pocket Books. One of them is an amazing Spider Man one that collects the first six issues. They did three of those reprinting like the first, like, 18 or so issues of. Amazing Spider-Man. I know a lot of people actually got into comics because of those, especially Spider-Man. And they're not too cheap, uh, uh, not too expensive, I mean, on eBay. You can find them for a pretty reasonable price. (laughs) We also have the Mego figures, including the Conan Mego, who looks like somebody raided their dad's Ren Faire outfit and went out and was playing and cosplaying (laughs) and such, so... Uh, page 11, I just thought of something where Jean Grey reveals herself as the Phoenix to her parents. Yeah. I think the next panel should have been two little piles of ash in front of her. Yeah. <laughs> Whoosh! <laughs> Whoops. Sorry. 
co- according to Mike's Amazing World, the cover is penciled by Cockrum, inked by Austin. Hmm. That makes sense. Austin on his own had a kind of a burn style. Not that he drew just like Burn, but they complemented each other very well. So I, I could see we're both uh, both kind of in. What is with Scott's outfit? What? Who is he trying to impress? Austin loved to go to the Zipatone. And he, he went to that on, on Scott's shirt. I think he went to that on Moira's jacket and Banshee's pants, too. Oh, it's terrible on Banshee's pants. <laughs> okay, what? Well, most things are. La- last thing for me, page 10. <laughs> page 10, Kurt's hanging upside down, which is kind of awesome. And he has a picture of Amanda on the thing. At what point was it common for you to give your picture a picture of yourself with somebody that you signed to people? Because I see that all the time, and I never really understand it. I think only in TV and movies. I don't think in real life that ever, that, that ever happens. Okay, good, because that's really kind of silly. I mean... <laughs> Bad enough, I'm egotistical enough to give you a picture of myself. Here's Let me sign, sign that so you never forget. Yeah, it might be worth money one day. <laughs> well, no, you could write a note on the back, but no. I'd well, yeah, you could, you, could write, you could write a note of, you know, oh, I love you so much or something, whatever. But just to sign your name, I, yeah. I kind of agree with Mike on that. Uh, I like the fact that he has an Errol Flynn uh, Captain Blood poster in his world. Mm-hmm. Well. That makes perfect sense. I mean, that was that was kind of one of the great thing about the X-Men, especially from this time period, is that when they went to their rooms and such, you got so much personality well, just in the background. Like, you know, Storm Peter has, was... has a map on his on his wall. I have been here and here and here. <laughs> and he's got a picture of his parents. And I wonder if that's signed. <laughs> Mama and Papa. <laughs> no, they're illiterate. So you can't write. <laughs> Funny Boy, how that Mike is one matronly like looking woman, though. <laughs> That's a man, baby. And and we would be remiss if we didn't mention the fact that uh, in in this issue, once again, uh, Thor fights the Dingling family. Oh yeah, I was just going to get to that. I believe we've already discussed that in the previous. <laughs> She's the matriarch of the Dingling family. I think we I may guess. have even done a dramatic reading of this one at one time. I know it was one Scott always regretted that we couldn't get to on Tales of the JSA because, you know, it's a Marvel book. But he he would like just about every episode we would record, he would go, man, this dingling thing is just hilarious. So finally getting to see it, I can see where he thought it was funny. And uh, just, you know, last thing is cartoon Stan Lee was much younger than. And the ad for Pizzazz. This is when Stan Lee was like wearing the shirt with the you know the buttons open and the chest hair hanging out. Have you ever seen pictures of him from this era? I've seen Stan in this era. I met Stan. Oh, okay. In this era. Well, there you go. And he didn't look like that, did he? No, you know, kind of. Huh? He didn't look quite as buff as they make him look, but yeah, I guess yeah, more or less he looked like that. You know, he'd have the cool shades. No, this this is Stan when he went like to the to the cabin when he's just you know like you know he hired somebody to cut up the wood for him but he wants to look like it's you know gone native so he wears an ugly plaid shirt that David Banner will one day rip out of. Pizzazz magazine. It was a bad magazine, by the way. I don't know if you've ever picked it up. I was I was about to ask uh, if you if you if you had read it read it at if, the time. If I remember right, it was kind of a. Not not a teen like like a girly teen magazine, but like a teen magazine which would just have a kind of a peripheral connection to Marvel Comics in it somewhere, but wasn't really a comic readers 
delight. I don't know. You know, nothing, nothing about it was, was worthwhile. Though it is kind of cool to note uh, that in Stanley's soapbox, uh, he says, speaking of, uh, speaking of that, here's another nutty thing that we can only happen in the wacky world of Marvel. As you know, Universal Studios just completed a live-action two-hour special TV movie of everybody's favorite Jolly Green Giant. In fact, the Incredible Hulk may be prime-timing it on the two by the time you read these Im- imperishable words. Anyway, what do you think they called old Doc Banner? Bruce? Uh Uh-uh. Bob? Forget it. They decided to name him Dave. For $3, you could turn any wall into a giant TV screen with a high-fidelity image. I always thought that was audio. Maybe it was kind of like radio back in like the 30s and 40s because it was such new technology. It was kind of like it became like the cyber of that era where anything new and futuristic was radio, like the radio flyer. Mm. Mm. Actually, it's $3 for a complete set of plans. (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't actually get the thing to, to project it onto your wall, just the plans. We're going to get the cathode ray tube. Damn it. To all who want powerful muscles fast, remove your gastrointestinal system. Then you can have this body. 25 live seahorses for $3. Ooh, is that seahorses? shrimp. Kit includes two mated pairs of freshly caught seahorses, including one pregnant male, who will give birth to as many as 25 babies. <laughs> Giant Ouch. magic ghost. I think that's how the ghost hunters got their, you know, their start. They saw that. <laughs> Learn cartooning. If learning cartooning means you're going to draw an image as rudimentary as the pa- face that's on that ad, <laughs> I don't need your your uh, your book. Thank you. And then there's the 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 Robert Bell thing at the bottom of the of the page. Marvel Comics group checklist and price with list. B Thor. That, yeah, with B Thor. <laughs> it's just, I remember seeing that when I was a kid going, that is so stupid. Uh, but that's all I got. Yeah, I got nothing more for you on this one. But the, you know what? So far, two books, two for two. Two great ones as far as I'm concerned. You know, the only way you could ruin that is to talk about some book that's tied to a not well thought of crossover. No, but we wouldn't do that to you. What well, Would we, Bill? Problem, I got. <laughs> oh, guy. How are we oh getting God, static still... on digital? <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's a reason I picked my book. Okay. I, so I how, many, how many beers did you have? I need my pain. I want my pain. <laughs> well, I guess with that, uh, we'll start on my book. I've got a long and lengthy synopsis as usual. Although I hopefully I, I won't be going for a record tonight. I think it's somewhat concise. <laughs> Bullshit. Anyway, my book is X-Men Volume 2, Issue 53, cover date June 1996. It was on sale date of April 16th, 1996. Cover price 195. So coupled with my price and your guys' prices, we could maybe buy half a sandwich at 7-Eleven? Possibly. Or, could, or we could hit the um, like the value menu at McDonald's. Oh, yeah, we could get uh, hmm, 
Hmm, that's not a bad idea. Two McDoubles and a small fry. Mm-hmm. No, no drink though, unless we drop one of the McDoubles. They got a water fountain. <laughs> I'll bring my own drink. Ah, uh, our cover. Uh, co- our cover credits are Andy Kubert and anchor is Cam Smith. And uh, at, on the the cover, we have Gene Gray sits in the clutches of Onslaught, as an oddly enough, a, a four fingered hand prepares <laughs> to capture her. And I studied this. I actually looked in the book and went, wait a minute, does he have five fingers somewhere else? In the, yeah, he does. He's so. got a fifth one. It's Where? In the back. Where? Uh, Look over her head. Oh! Okay. See, that's why you're here, Mike. I, I didn't even see that. What, to make you I, look foolish? So he has I hope a, that's not uh, why I'm here. He has an oddly circular hand. <laughs> yes, may, may, maybe that's what threw me off because I expected the thumb somewhere else. Boy, that there you go, Paul. You can save that one. I'm sure that'll fit in nicely somewhere. <laughs> Bill LMD. <laughs> anyway, she's wearing the standard 90s costume of blue and yellow with the red and black X circle symbol on her waist. And she is surrounded by streams of pink psychic energy as she is ready for battle. And uh, our uh, the story's name is False Fronts, writer Mark Wade, penciler Andy Kubert, anchor Cam Smith, and John Dell on page six. Letter is Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and colorist is Joe Rosas, Rosas, Rojas, Rosas, Rosas, I think I've butchered this before. And it also says Malibu Enhancement, so I think this is right after they had bought up Malibu, wasn't it? Yeah, and this they, was 96, so they yeah. <laughs> they bought a comic company to steal their coloring technique. And then <laughs> drove it in the ground. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we got your books, we're going to cross over a bunch of people, and then we're going to drop you like a bad habit, so... Good night, don't folks. Worry. Don't worry. There's going to be a Nightman TV series one day. Good luck! <laughs> Play cricket scene theme here. <laughs> anyway, false fronts. While in Salem Center, New York, Jean Grey tries to enjoy a Saturday looking for a dress when she meets a sadomasochistic man, a woman with a compulsive eating disorder, and an airhead. Sounds like the start of a bad joke. Unfortunately for Jean, though, it is the surface thought she's picking up from the people she has encountered. She turns away and steps into the changing room of the dress shop to find herself on the astral plane. Before her stands a massive figure in purple and red armor that is somewhat reminiscent of Magneto's armor. Hmm. It tells her to trust it right. And it's here from the government and it's here to help. It speaks of preparing her for the upcoming DC Comics event in 15 years called Flashpoint. Oh, no, wait, sorry. That's the upcoming... <laughs> that is the upcoming upcoming human mutant relation flashpoint. Sorry, my bad. Jeans thinks that is a little dramatic and mentions that the future they fight for is a brighter tomorrow. We share... Uh, before she can finish the sentence, the figure mocks her dream. A dream to some. A nightmare to other... Oh, sorry, sorry. That was the movie Excalibur. My bad again. Back to the story. The entity shows her the dress shop and listens in on the thoughts of the humans left wondering where Jean went and other disparaging remarks. The creature speaks of fear and loathing in Las Vegas, uh, I mean Westchester, and asks how does she deal with the duplicity of humans every day? Coping and compassion are the telepath's answer. Now she's asked, who is it? Its, its answer is frustration, as it directs an energy beam from its eyes destroying the dress shop. Nah, psych. Just an illusion. It's an illusion. And just like that, Doug Henning appears. Hi, J. David Weeder. The creature takes Jean away to further demonstrate the duality and secrets kept by humans. Under the title 
of all subplots accounted for, number one, copyright from Crisis to Crisis, Hank McCoy struggles in chains behind the brick wall that is Age of Apocalypse universe counterpart built around him. See X-Men Unlimited number 10. In his bid to break free, he may have finally found a way out. More on that in a later issue. Now, back to Jean and her captor. He has taken her to the campaign headquarters of Graydon Creed. 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 Where have I heard that name before? Can you take me higher? That wasn't quite the, the creed I was thinking. But that will do. They didn't do, Along comes the hero. Or is that just another uh, creed-sounding group? No, that's that's the dude from Nickelback doing that song for the Spider-Man film. So. Oh. Look at they say a hero will save us. <laughs> Look God, at this photograph. Every time I do it makes me laugh. Oh, sorry. All right. <laughs> See, I got way off on the synopsis anyway. No matter. They listen into a, a conversation between the candidate and his campaign manager. Campaign. Campaign manager, Stephen. To no one's surprise, Creed doesn't like mutants. Duh. Gene is puzzled how this proves anything, as it is no secret about Creed's leanings. Ah, but when they read Steven's dirty little mind, it is revealed that he doesn't care one way or another about mutants. His driving force is to obtain power, and Creed, can you take me higher, is how he will do it. Thanks, Mike. That just fits in nice. Again, the entity taunts Jean with human-mutant harmony as a farce. She says that she surrounds herself with friends that she trusts to help keep out the negative thoughts of others. Really? It now speeds her off to another location to show her one of her friends. Subplots accounted for number two, copyright from Crisis to Crisis. The Angel and Psylocke are visited by the Juggernaut. I'm the... Uh, never mind. Who somehow bursts from the shadows that have been chasing them since Uncanny X-Men 333. He has something important to tell them, but has been under the neuralizer chair and has a mental block. And decides that there is only one person who can help him, and he is in New York. While he is in Colorado. And he's going to walk there. Dumbass. Okay, back to that in a few months. Well, Gene, like almost as smart as the angels flying across the <laughs> Atlantic Ocean. Jean and her mysterious host approach the X-Mansion. She says to not even try to look into Scott's mind to do, due to the intimacy she shares with him. She shrugs off he shrugs her off and says Scott hasn't had an independent thought since he was 15. He's the lapdog of her mentor. Her mentor's mind is what they're here to see. Spurred by this, she leads the way into Charles' mind. <laughs> Anybody ask Charles? As she knows, he has no secrets from her. She knows <clears throat> how since a child, the professor was also that she was the only that's fake his own death. See Uncanny X-Men 42 through 65, Volume 1. He has been like a father to her. Oh, really? Says her antagonist as he rips open a repressed memory showing a scene from the X-Men's early days as Charles Xavier thinks to himself how Jean is the one he loves. And this is where I'm stepping out of the synopsis on purpose uh, for a moment to reveal why I chose this book. I did this as an homage to the now-defunct podcast Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters that was hosted by my co-host tonight, Mike, uh, J. David Weeder, and John Wilson. And they never quite reached this milestone, so I salute them. But I do remember them. I, I believe you guys did reach this in the books that you did cover. Yes. Is that Yeah. It's creepy. 
<laughs> to say the least. <laughs> now back to the story. Jean is shocked by the revelation and overwhelmed with the flood of repressed thoughts, fears, and shames being thrown at her by this malevolent being. She cries out, Who are you? Who, who? Who, who? Now tell me. Who are you? Never mind. Subplots accounted for number. Jesus, enough already. If I didn't know better, you'd think Chris Claremont wrote this damn book. Eric Magnus Lenchier finds himself in South Carolina where Luke Giaconetti is having a barbecue. Uh, no, wait, no. Sorry, wrong, wrong Carolina. Anyway, the locals offer him chicken and ask him his name. He tells them Joseph as the entire crowd looks on at the silver-haired hippie with questions in their eyes to be continued. Now Jean stands before Jean Valjean and as he asks, Who am I? Who am I? Wait, don't sorry, this isn't lame news. For now, though, let's call this being Valjean because I am sick of coming up with other words for being, entity, etc., etc. Valjean taps Jean into letting go and showing her images of when she was the phoenix. Let it go, let it go. Shut your hole. (laughs) (laughs) And asks her to be his consort. Wrong move, Valjean, as Javert, I mean Jean, pushes back and again demands to know, who are you? The reply is, I think you already know, Jean. I am the god of hellfire, and I bring you fire. And to those that do not worship me, I am an angry god. Know my name. Jean is pushed backwards by her head and finds herself no longer on the astral plane, but back in the changing room of the dress shop. Dazed and confused and slightly high, she remembers the being's last words and turns to see the worst acne nightmare a 16-year-old girl could have. The word onslaught psychically burned on her forehead to be continued in Uncanny X-Men 334. And you can find this reprinted in the Onslaught Volume 1 trade paperback in 1997 and X-Men Onslaught, the complete epic Volume 1 trade paperback in 2008. (sighs) Not too bad. I think I summed that up kind of quickly. No? Yes? (laughs) What? What? Huh? What? Actually, you did, you, you did a, fa- a fairly brief job on on a book that's all over the map. I yeah, I think I just read it really quick. <laughs> There's no way I could have done this off the cuff. No way. I I I looked at it and went, no, I got to write this again. Mm-mm. So, what do you guys think? Uh, I know we've had good reviews for the book so far, aside from the story, which you know. I know the uh, the art, you know, it's 90s art, pretty much. I do you know, like... I'm... Go ahead. This is a weird one, because this is, the of, of the three books that we, we talked about tonight, this is the one that I read first run. Uh, I remember this summer vividly, because it was my first summer down here in Georgia, and a friend of mine owned a comic shop, which and he decided to let all his friends hang out there, which was great for us, but terrible for a business. Uh, because because <laughs> nothing says <laughs> it, 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 nothing says inviting business by letting a bunch of uh, you know like people in their early twenties hang out there all the time. But <laughs> not, nothing helps business quite like taking all the people who would spend money in your store and just letting them read the product for free. <laughs> but there were you know the X Men in, in the mid nineties was number one still it was the dominant property. So onslaught was a huge deal. Now it's mocked today. Mm-hmm. But at the time of the people in the shop that read X-Men, this was a huge deal. Mark Wade coming on this title was a huge deal because he was, you know, kind of, you know, king of the road thanks to his run on Flash and then his run on Captain America, which was wrapping up around this time, though he didn't really know it. 
Uh, unfortunately, he really did not get along with Scott Lobdell, uh, which probably galls him to know that he's Scott Lobdell became like a big lead dog at DC you know, during the New 52, which, well, given, given his Superman run, uh, which is the very definition of hot and cold. Um, overall, I enjoyed this book uh, as much as I did when I first read it. You are right, though. This is like the, the king of the subplots. <laughs> Though I, I I will say this the uh, the one with Eric Lencher, you get the sense that they're going to eat him. I mean, like <laughs> I, I couldn't remember. I don't remember what that was like. Why are they looking at him like that? You know, I mean, so just because he's a silver haired hippie or or what? I mean, I mean, you know? is there like is there like a little girl on a little zombie girl on a leash? And you know, <laughs> you know, you know they they, they you know something about strangers and stuff. So, but no, I mean. The thing that I loved about this book is that for years, Professor Xavier was kind of the stern taskmaster of the X-Men world. And I'm willing to bet that 98% of the people that read X-Men at this time had no idea about that kind of twisted thing of Professor Xavier loving Gene and thinking about it. Uh, and for Wade to bring that up, because I remember interviews with Wade around this time that he was like saying, you know, Professor Xavier is kind of a kind of a tool bag i mean when you really read those first issues of the x-men usually the the plot was resolved by professor x coming in and shutting everyone's mind down i mean mind wiping everybody (laughs) like the like the hypno toad you know or (laughs) all hail the hypno toad onslaught's look is incredibly 90s but at the same time it's not bad for incredibly 90s uh I, i i maybe it's nostalgia uh, you know, and well, the f- it is a variation of the Magneto armor. But the funny thing is, is that they are all but telling you who Onslaught <laughs> is, and it ain't Magneto. So that, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so when you go back and read it, it's pretty obvious. At the time, not so much. But the greatest thing about this issue is how Wade, on the very first page, because Wade's a really good writer when it comes to character, gives you an idea of what it's like to be Jean Grey. And, you know, just, you know, directions, <laughs> certainly, miss. The dress shop is two blocks straight down. My pleasure. You have a pleasure day, pleasant day now. Here, translation, please walk up and down, walk up and down my ch- naked chest in stiletto heels. <laughs> Sundresses, we have some in the rear. And won't you look lovely in them? Translation, you're a size eight, aren't you? I hate you. <laughs> it would have been really funny if, if they looked over the girl with like, this is the new Armandy, very Chi-Chi. And there was nothing. <laughs> just dots <laughs> so no I you know as as silly as Onslaught became for an opening chapter this was actually pretty good It, re- I mean just, just really dived into Gene as a character and I think did a good job of introducing Onslaught or continuing to introduce Onslaught and make him credible until that ending happened and everything kind of fell apart do you do you think the title of the story was in any way a play on the fact that they made it look like Magneto, that the title was False Fronts, and then you hear like the second page in, there's this massive Magneto-looking figure. I wouldn't be that... surprised. I mean, that 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 sounds like something Wade would do. Hmm. But it's just such an it's just so unfortunate that his run was so short because of Scott Lobdell apparently being a d bag. Hmm. Well, you know what's nice in that in that main in that first spread page is how 
when Jean transitions from the dress shop to the astral plane, they change her clothes subtly. It's like it, it kind of morphs and melts into her regular costume from the clothes she was wearing. Yeah, I I am very I have very mixed feelings about the art in this book because I like the layouts and I like the effects like that. I just don't like the manga influence over like the facial features on people that was so prevalent in the 90s although in the shot where her uh, body is transforming does it does it or does it not look like she's like letting loose with some wicked gas <laughs> <laughs> well it is the astral plane oh, sorry, sorry. I, I would say I, I'm I, I'm kind of thrown off a little bit because I thought I was going to be saying I thought I was going to be surprising you guys when I gave you my opinion and yet my opinion is very very similar to Mike's uh, I like this I think this is a good start to a story I think the story itself suffered from a lot of the, what the 90s uh, mega events did in that they just tried to spread it too thin ultimately but this this issue I think, think has, has a lot of you know, psychological subtext to it. There's, you know, there's a lot of storylines to follow that he's meshing together here, which ultimately will mostly go together at some point. Now, at what point did Wade take over? Like, who did Chris Claremont have this right before? When did Claremont no, leave? No, Claremont. Claremont left in '92. No, '91. Oh, okay. He left. He, he left, left after right. issue three of Adjective right. X. Okay. Adjective so, X Men. All right, so he wasn't the creator of all these subplots. And and as much as I think every other writer before this tried to sweep that uh, Xavier lusting after Gene thing under the rug, yeah, it was out there. So the fact that Wade took it, addressed it, and and you know made it into something, I, I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, there is a lot of uh, uh, subtext that you can't really do in the synopsis that you really have to read through to catch a lot of the stuff that they're discussing about. Xavier and, and and everything. I mean, I did touch on the one thing that Onslaught, quote unquote, is saying that you know Scott hasn't had an independent thought since he was fifteen, <laughs> and mm. that he's just a lapdog of Professor Charles Xavier, which is you. Oh, catch out the bag, in case anybody know it. That's right. And, and it's not that he's not that he's just Xavier though, because he is Xavier and Magneto combined. Well, that was I think the out they gave. I think on one hand they that they, they kind of gave that as an out saying that oh well that's that's why this happened but I, I don't think that was originally the intent. I think the intent was that it was, you know, his suppressed psyche. But I no, think they well, just but, but but it was let loose because he mind wiped Magneto and the and that actually came into his own mind and, and, and corrupted didn't corrupt him or, you know, let loose what he always fought to hold back. Mm. That's why the costume is is a variation on Magneto's costume. Mm -hmm. At least that's how I always read it. I, I think I think it was always the intention that it, that it was going to be basically Magneto corrupting Xavier's efforts to contain his bad thoughts. And then we have the uh, the rather uh, what is that page fourteen I think of the story um, the rather creepy looking Professor X looking down at the small schoolgirl Jean Grey. <laughs> She's well, all of about what four or five. Hello, little girl. 
Underneath my the blanket that covers my legs, I have some candy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that that's the thing about him. You know, when you look at it, you just just in terms of what he was doing, there is never going to be a time now that a older man thinking a sixteen being in love with a sixteen year old girl is not going to have Benson and Stabler kicking down your door and and, and wanting to bust you. But at the same time. <laughs> It seemed to me that one maybe Lee was playing Xavier a little younger than what we you know traditionally consider him now. But more than that, that was a that was a that was a trope of early Marvel stories. There was always going to be the guy that was in love with the girl who doesn't know he exists, and maybe she's in love with him too. But she did, but she thinks there's something standing in their way, and that's just how it was. Unfortunately, he chose to do it with a teacher and a 16 year old girl, which in the cold light of the present doesn't look good. Oh, I don't. So the fact would back then either. So. But you see, the thing is, is that, you know, like in, in, in Alpha Flight, it was revealed that James uh, Hudson's wife was like, it, it was almost like oh, an yeah. indie Marion Ravenwood situation. Mm-hmm. And let's go into Indiana Jones with Marion Ravenwood. I mean, yeah, I, I think it was a common thing. And I, I don't think Stanley intended it to be creepy, mm-hmm. but it was creepy. I, it, I don't yeah. think it, I don't think it became creepy with hindsight. I think it was creepy when it came out. But. <laughs> The creepiness is like knocked up to 11 in this issue by showing him knowing her as a little girl. And that's like yeah. Celine Dion and her producer creepy thing, you know, where, you know, he knew her when she was that young. And then when she grew up, it's like, oh, look what she grew into. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and, then, well, and then in the shot directly below the one with her as a little girl where she's wearing her Marvel girl outfit. Gene, here's a Marvel Girl outfit for you to wear that I've designed. The skirt <laughs> doesn't, doesn't go much below your crotch. All the other boys have have full body costumes, but you're going to wear this skirt. And, and I'm going to tell you something that I'm not telling anybody else, because it's going to lead us to trust. And then what I'm going to tell you is in my pants. So. <laughs> Again, underneath the blanket on my legs. Oh. <laughs> uh. It's so wrong. And yet the comedy is so right. <laughs> I, I do. I also like just the shot of the close up of her eye. It, it, to me, it just, there's so much emotion in that mm-hmm. when she is, when it is revealed to her that he had that thought about being in love with her. I, I love that. I think that's so effective. Mm-hmm. And even here, Scott's still a snappy dresser. Even even back then, Scott was wearing Zipatone. <laughs> you know, you know. The more I think about Scott Summers, the more I hate him. I mean, he's he's such a douchebag, and I and I feel bad for him. But at the same time, he's always portrayed. I mean, the, the line Scott hasn't had an original thought in his head since he was fifteen was pretty dead on accurate. Mm. Well, I I think you know back then he was played as a you know insecure guy with tremendous leadership skills and i think now in the current uh portrayal he's portrayed as a douche i haven't read a new x-men book i read the i read the first three issues out of the first morrison trade and went not for me and put it down bendis is actually doing some pretty good things with the x-men right now is he still a is he still basically a villain kind of uh and and I might be speaking out of turn because I am not all caught up, but yeah, kind of. 
Yeah, he was labeled that after uh, X versus or Avengers versus X Men. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. But you know, p- people make fun of this era of comics, and Onslaught really was kind of the last gasp. Uh, unfortunately, not really the last gasp. But it was basically the kind of representation of everything that was wrong with that early to mid-90s tropes in the comics. Unfortunately, the X-Men just kept going with it after Onslaught, whereas DC in 96 did a serious course correction and, and kind of steered away from that. Because after this, you ha- you know, after Onslaught, you have, what was that called? Operation Zero Tolerance? <laughs> yes, sorry. <laughs> And then you know, you know, Marrow and like those characters, and then it just it just seemed like everything just got really silly, and uh, and you know, I I didn't I wasn't reading at that time, but I knew a lot of people who were, and it was it was you know it's it's like let the bodies hit the floor as people start just dropping all the titles, but at this point it was still like everyone loved the X Men, just absolutely loved them. So while this issue, you know, kind of leads somewhere not so good, it's still really exciting and engaging. And I can see why people were reading at this time. I mean, hell, I picked up this book simply because Mark Wade was writing it. And I remember being like thoroughly entertained, uh, you know, back when I, you know, almost 20 years ago. Did you ever read the X-Men Unlimited that this references to where where the beast was walled up inside this factory? I yeah, I, I, I quote unquote burn stole it. I remember it because I worked at Walmart when I first moved to Georgia and they were still carrying comics at the time. And that was one of them. So while I was on the clock, I read the comic. Yeah, it was it, it was it was it was pretty cool. It was his uh, Age of Apocalypse, the gray colored beast that was basically going to dye his hair blue and pose as as McCoy. Which is a great idea. I mean, you know, say what you will about how cliched some of Age of Apocalypse is. That was actually a pretty daring thing for them to do. Well, plus I they, mean, that was a gamble. Plus they pl- played it up like uh, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, The Cask of Amontillado. You know, I think he even says at one point, for the love of God, Montresor, don't want me. I mean, I might be getting my stories mixed, but I think I remember something like that. You know, Hank McCoy being so well read, I think, would reference that. One of them did it. It's been so long since I've read it. Not quite sure. But no, this is a great choice. I, I was a little perplexed because you said you had a plan, and I figured that plan was to announce your Onslaught podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It Coming was, soon it was, from Back to the Vins. It was, it was to, I was having a hard time choosing one, and I happened to be going through um, a a few books and, and then I saw in there the reference to Professor Xavier loving Jean Grey and I'm like you know what you guys mentioned that on your podcast and you never had a chance to obviously get that far so I wanted to to kind of put a bookend on it maybe somewhat and perhaps next week you'll hear a little bit more in Onslaught Spotlight <laughs> yeah well if those come out at the same speed the Avengers ones uh, look for it next year <laughs> Which we need to do some more Avengers Soon. Well, we we just so booked up with X Men and and Planet of the Apes for a while. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, come coming this July, Avengers Spotlight three. <laughs> well, I mean, we could do a two man and then yeah. jump back on on with Scott to finish up. Uh... No, no problem with that. But like I said, for the oh, next, yeah. next couple of weeks, we oh yeah, no, I know, booked up. Well, once we hit once we hit like the second week in May, I'm done with school. 
So that's another thing that's been tying me up a lot. I'm done with school, man. Well, I'm done with school for the summer. School, school sells out for <laughs> summer. <laughs> <laughs> I live to see you eat that contract, but I hope you leave enough room for my fist because I'm going to ram it in your stomach and break your goddamn spine! I'll be back. Are you Zarkana? See you at the party, Richter! F*** you, soul. Oh, you think you're bad, huh? You're a choir boy compared to me! A choir boy! Get to the chopper! You're one ugly motherfucker. Hasta la vista, baby. Get your ass to Mars. No, it's not a tumor. It's not a tumor. I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. Consider this a divorce. Crush your enemies. See them driven before you, and hear the lamentation of the women. I promise not to kill anyone. They live. Milk are for babies. When you get older, you drink beer. First, I'm gonna use you as a human shield. Then I'm gonna break that shield so they can kill the god with it. Then I was thinking about breaking your neck. I do not want to touch his ass. I want to make him talk. I don't do requests. I did nothing. The pavement was his enemy. Stick around. Nice night for a walk. I'm pregnant. I let him go. Chill out, dickwad. Honey, you shouldn't drink and bake. I eat green rice for breakfast, and I'm very hungry. First, the air is going to heat up in here to 451 degrees. Then your past will explode like a Roman candle. Your socks will ignite, and your fingernails will melt. Let off some steam, Bennett. A freeze is coming! Between your faith and my Glock 9mm, I'll take the Glock. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Krom, I have never prayed to you before. God pleases you, Krom. Grant me one request. Grant me revenge! Then if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Come on, Kohaken. You got what you want? Give these people air! F*** you, asshole. First, I will turn Gotham into an icy graveyard. Then I will pull Batman's heart from his body and feel it freeze in my hand! The bridge is out! You're not sending me to the cooler. Snakes? Did you say snakes? What the hell are you? You know I am. I'm the famous comedian, Arnold Braunschweiger. Come with me if you want to live. Schwarzenegger! Gesundheit! 
that that's probably a good place to go out. <laughs> That'll work. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of DiManzocore of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.